0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the Biden administration's booster shot plans hit a roadblock, and Congress gets set for a fall budget showdown. There is relief this morning in the nation's capital, as a strong show of security at Saturday's rally in support of those arrested following the January 6th insurrection the crowds away. Nothing like the scene nine months ago. Now the focus turns to lawmakers as both houses of Congress returned to Washington for the first time since the end of July. First up, consideration of a massive $3.5 trillion spending plan that threatens to shatter the fragile fault lines within the Democratic Party. We'll talk with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Plus, an FDA advisory panel overwhelmingly votes against widespread booster shots for adults, saying the data is inconclusive. We'll ask the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, what happened? Plus, we'll have a special conversation with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. His new book, Uncontrolled Spread, takes a hard look at America's COVID failures and offers some solutions.
2: We cannot allow something like this to hit us this bad again so we have to prepare differently
1: we'll also talk with united airlines ceo scott kirby about how the travel industry is navigating the persistent pandemic threat plus a look at the fallout from the u.s military's tragic mistake last month in afghanistan it's all just ahead on face the nation Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. On the COVID front, the news is still bleak. Nearly 10,000 Americans died last week of the virus. We now total more than 673,000 dead. Children who are still not eligible for vaccines account for almost 29% of all cases. And according to the AAP, there were nearly a quarter million new pediatric COVID infections last week. We begin with senior national correspondent Mark Strassman in Orlando.
3: Instead of widespread boosters, the Biden White House got a shot of rejection. An FDA advisory panel on Friday recommended Pfizer boosters only for vaccinated seniors and high-risk patients, a decision making a challenging process even more so.
2: If you want to roll out booster shots to the population, you can't flip a switch and make that happen overnight.
3: Not in COVID America, where the virus now kills around 1,900 people a day. The highest average in six months. By any measure, COVID sorrow stocks Florida with a vengeance. More than fifty thousand Floridians already dead. An average of three hundred and fifty more every day, tops in America. We gotta manage our behaviors, we gotta get vaccinated. Dr. Vincent Shu, an infectious disease physician, works at Advent Health Orlando. System wide, Advent Health has 50 hospitals with seventeen hundred COVID patients. More than half of them in central Florida. There's still a lot of uh, issues with, with taking care of these patients, supplies, space, uh, as well as staffing. Continuous surges remain a threat. We always have to be prepared for another surge. Critics blast the
2: state's leadership for failing to protect the youngest Floridians. The decision to keep, try to keep kids in school was the right decision. The decision to let the virus spread the way it has and not even employ mitigation in the school as it's doing now, I disagree with that decision.
3: Pandemic politics surge blood pressures across the country. No more masks! In Ohio, state lawmakers threatened to block any mask mandate the governor tried to issue. And like his reaction...
4: Every single county is red hot. Some counties are almost boiling over.
3: At the United Nations, the global worry, a potential super-spreader event starting Tuesday. New York City has a vaccine mandate for conventions, but the UN has no power to enforce it. We as secretariat cannot tell a head of state if he's not vaccinated that he cannot enter the United Nations. This hospital, Orlando's largest, is short hundreds of nurses, despite retention bonuses and shift bonuses. And it's a crisis across America's hospitals. Early retirements, resignations, and a rash of sick days. Staff burned out by this ongoing COVID siege. Margaret?
1: Mark, thank you. We'd like to now welcome the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, to the broadcast. Thank you for taking time this morning.
5: I'm glad to be with you, Margaret.
1: (laughs) Doctor, you predicted earlier this month that it may well be boosters are going to be recommended for almost everybody. That didn't happen on Friday. Do you still expect broad approval?
5: You know, we have to see how this plays out over the coming weeks because the data changes every day. I do think it was very significant that the FDA Advisory Committee voted unanimously in favor of offering boosters to people 65 and over, and to others who have high-risk exposures like healthcare professionals. So we're starting down that path. They weren't convinced yet that the data required this for younger individuals who aren't at high risk, but I think some of the data we're seeing coming in, especially from Israel, tells me that it's likely that they will get to that point. But this was a start. And I know people were confused about different messages, but in a certain way, Margaret, this is the way it ought to be. Science sort of playing out in a very transparent way, looking at the data coming from multiple places, our country, other countries, and Mm -hmm. trying to make the best decision for right now. That's what they did.
1: But as a medical professional, your view is a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine will be necessary for everyone.
5: You know, yeah, I am a physician, a scientist. I'm not a politician. I'm trying to figure out what's the best answer here. Uh, The place that might still be somewhat questionable would be the very youngest individuals. Is the benefit risk needed there? But certainly, I think there will be a decision in the coming weeks to extend boosters beyond the list that they approved on Friday.
1: So this advisory panel, as you said, gave a green light for 65 and up and those high risk. Who does that actually mean? Dr. Dr. Peter Marks, the FDA official who oversees vaccines, put teachers in that high risk category. Do you agree with that?
5: I think they could be seen in that space. They are, after all, in circumstances, especially if they're in classrooms with kids under 12 who can't be vaccinated, where they are at higher risk of exposure than most of the rest of us. So maybe in that regard, they kind of fit into the same category as healthcare providers. The way in which the FDA panel made the vote, it was a little ambiguous. FDA is going to think about that.
1: Well, exactly, because you wonder, is it just as risky being in a classroom as a hospital ward? And what does that mean for people like me who live with unvaccinated children? Does that put me in a high risk category?
5: Margaret that is a great question and I think that is one the CDC will probably have their committee uh, discuss in some uh, seriousness on Wednesday and Thursday cuz yes you are in a circumstance with younger kids who can't be immunized where it is more likely that you could be exposed in somebody who's living alone
1: We'll watch for that if someone got the Moderna or the Johnson and Johnson vaccine And they fit into the 65 and older category. Do they walk into their CVS this week and say, give me a third dose of Pfizer? Can you mix and match? And I know N.A.H. is looking at this. So tell me what you're seeing so far.
5: So we are right in the middle uh, of those trials to see, can you mix and match any one of the three that have emergency use authorization? Can you start with one and boost with the others? Uh, We're going to know more about that just in the course of the next two or three weeks. Right now, we don't have the answer. Moderna and J&J, by the way, have also submitted their booster data. So it's likely that FDA will be able to have a comment on that pretty soon. It's not quite in sync here. So People who got Moderna, that would be including me, uh, need to sort of hang on here and see what the recommendation is uh, for those of us uh, who were interested in a booster. And people shouldn't be rushing out right now and getting a booster before it's actually gone through this process. A fair number of people seem to be doing that. Hang on, people. Let's be clear. The vaccines right now in the U.S. are doing a great job of protecting people against severe disease hospitalization. What we're worried about is that's beginning to erode, and we're seeing more breakthrough cases, and we don't want to get behind this virus. We
1: want to stay ahead of it. But the White House did want boosters broadly available this week. Do you still believe they will be widely available this week?
5: Well, part of the reason for this to get talked about a month ago was to be sure we were prepared. You know, I kind of think Mm -hmm. about this like when you're preparing for a hurricane. We have a system that starts noticing a tropical disturbance somewhere out there in the Atlantic long before there's a risk that it's going to hit New Orleans. This is good. That's kind of what we're trying to do with COVID-19. So, part of this announcement that this might very well, if FDA and CDC agreed, be a good thing was to get all the pharmacies, all of the other uh, preparations together. So, there wouldn't be a mad dash at the end uh, right. to try to uh, actually implement this. Right, which I we think saw we with the We are in administration. a pretty good place by the end of this week.
1: Okay. Yes. Well, so, we know that next month is a target for a vaccine to 5 and 11 year olds. What about preschoolers and the very young? When do you expect vaccines for them?
5: So the trials on kids under five are still going on. The data won't be submitted to FDA for a bit longer. So I think realistically, we're not going to see approval in that space until very much later this year. I wouldn't want to put a precise date on it, though. There's so many uncertainties there about FDA's review and what the data looks like. But as you said... Kids 5 to 11, the data is supposed to come in the end of this month, and FDA will be working 24-7 to go through it. So Mm -hmm. we all hope that can happen in weeks and not months.
1: Okay, so still potentially within this year for the very young. Uh, Quickly, as a doctor, there's going to be a massive gathering in New York City for the U.N. General Assembly this week. Are you concerned it'll be a super spreader event?
5: Well, I sure hope not. We've had enough of those, haven't we? I hope people are taking this with the appropriate seriousness as far as vaccines and mask wearing and not doing silly things, and gathering indoors with masks off amongst people who are unvaccinated or even people who are vaccinated since we know they could also be breakthroughs and can be passing it along. So, yeah, New York, uh, let's pay attention here. We're in the midst of a Delta surge. Uh, it is not a safe place to throw caution to the winds.
1: Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. Face the Nation will be back in one minute with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Stay with us.
6: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code Wondery at Byte.com. That's BYTE.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back now with the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who joins us from Burlington. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Lots to get to with you today, but I do want to ask your reaction to uh, news that the U.S. military killed seven children, three civilian adults in this drone strike. Uh, You have in the past been very critical of reliance on drone strikes. Are you comfortable with the Biden administration's over-the-horizon policy?
7: Well, I certainly hope they understand what happened and make sure that never happens again. Um, This is not only a human tragedy, it reflects on us before the entire world, it's unacceptable.
1: On immigration, I also want to get your reaction to what the Biden administration just said they're doing this weekend, which is to step up deportations, um, particularly of some of these Haitian migrants who have gathered uh, in southern Texas, thousands of them. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has called it inhumane. Do you agree with her? And looking at what you're working on right now on Capitol Hill, do you expect immigration will be tucked into this $3.5 trillion <clears throat> spending plan?
7: I hope it will in the sense that right now we have uh, many, many millions yeah. of undocumented people in this country, people who are working hard. In fact, people who have maintained this economy, people who are doing the essential work, uh, something like 11 million people. And I would hope very much, and I think the American people agree, That now is the time, and if we can do it through reconciliation, I'm there, I want to do it, to move toward a path toward citizenship and comprehensive immigration reform uh, through the reconciliation bill. That's my hope.
1: Whether or not that can be done is still going to be decided. I know you say you want it done, but isn't this exactly the same kind of social policy that moderates are bulking bulking at here? Because you're tucking it into a mechanism that... Even you have said in the past should just be used for budget and spending.
7: Well, the truth is that when you, because we have no Republican support in trying to pass a significant piece of legislation representing working families, we have to do it through the so-called reconciliation process, which means that you have to obey the bird rules. I won't go into bore you with all the details. So it's something that we are arguing right now. But I do hope as we move toward what I believe is the most consequential piece of legislation for the working class of this country, as we demand that the wealthiest people and large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes, as we lower the cost of prescription drugs, as we expand Medicare Mm -hmm. to include dental care for seniors and hearing aids and eyeglasses, as we lower the childhood poverty, as we have already done, maintain that by 50% as a result of the American Rescue Plan, I hope. That immigration reform is part of that general package. But
1: don't all these very worthy causes you're laying out deserve their own debate and consideration? You in the past well, have said it, that this is not how. Margaret,
7: right this now we happen. have right now we have no Republican support, zero. There's not one Republican who is prepared to stand up to the drug companies and lower the cost of prescriptions. And you may drugs. not have
1: full Democratic support. Not one support Republican who
7: wants to build affordable housing. We can't do it without the reconciliation package. So right now what we are doing, and let's be clear, and I want the American people to understand it, we're taking on the pharmaceutical industry who are spending millions and millions of dollars trying to make sure they can charge us 10 times more than the people of other countries for drugs. We're taking on the healthcare industry who does not want to expand Medicare. We're taking on the fossil fuel industry who thinks it's okay to continue emitting carbon while destroying the planet. So, so this is you really have to, a you monumental also, struggle.
1: I understand it's monumental, and it's a struggle within your own party, you to be frank. That? Because Senator Manchin just met this week with President Biden. He continues to say the number you're asking for is too big. It's too much. Will you meet with the president this week? And do you plan to give anything here to get closer to the numbers that well, the Margaret, moderates I'll in your you own this. party say need to be met?
7: Well, let me tell you this. Uh, we have started off, as you know, with, I would guess, 80% of the Democratic caucus supporting a $6 trillion bill. Remember, this is over 10 years. Per year, it's less than we spend on the military. Now, maybe you can tell me, or somebody else can tell me, how much we should spend to save the planet. Because what the scientists are telling us is that if we don't get a handle on climate change within the next few years, there will be irreparable damage. And you know what? i got four kids and seven grandchildren. And I think we have a moral responsibility to leave them a planet that is healthy and is habitable. Are you sure so we that are working president... right now? We got 50. We got 50 votes. We're going to have to work it out as we did with the American Rescue Plan. But I have already made and my colleagues have made a major compromise going from six trillion down to three and a half trillion.
1: So I, am I hearing you correctly when you say you are not willing to move on that three and a half trillion dollar number, even if the president asks you to do it? I mean, are you risking Losing right now, everything.
7: look, right now what we are doing is we are engaging with the House and the Senate. It is a complicated proposal. All I am telling you is that $3.5 trillion is much too low. A compromise has already been made. An agreement has been made. And the American people, by the way, poll after poll after poll, are telling us right. now is the time to stand up to powerful special interests. Now is the time to start representing working families on all of these issues. They right. are enormously powerful, and maybe, just maybe, we can work for workers for a change and not just you campaign, keep saying, wealthy campaign you contributors. You keep saying
1: the number of 50 votes, but it is well reported that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema are not living you know, on this within the Democratic I, I, Party. Are you certain well, we that went President through Biden will with get this the them American all in line.
7: Rescue Plan. We dealt with this with the American Rescue Plan, which, as you know, is the most significant piece of legislation to take us out of the economic decline. And it cut childhood poverty by fifty percent. It provided unemployment benefits. It did what had to be done to get us out of the emergency. We came together, and right. I expect, because of the pressure of the American people, we're going to come together again and do what has to be done.
1: Will you meet with President Biden this week, just like Senator Manchin did last?
7: I talked. I talked. I'm happy to meet with the president uh, anytime. But at the end of the day. I think what so no. the overwhelming majority of the American people want us to do is finally stand up for them, not just the drug companies and the healthcare care industry and the fossil fuel industry. This is what right. we are trying to do. It's an enormous fight. We're going to win it.
1: It's an enormous fight, and we will track it. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Sanders. There were some big developments on the national security beat last week, including the Pentagon's admission of a tragic deadly mistake by U.S. military commanders last month as Americans were pulling out of Afghanistan. For more, we turn to CBS senior national security correspondent David Martin. David, it's good to have you here. You heard Senator Sanders say how badly this reflects uh, on the country in the eyes of the rest of the world. But policy-wise, doesn't this show also a flaw with the president's over-the-horizon strategy reliant on strikes like this?
4: Well, this is the heart of the matter. Uh, What happens in Afghanistan matters here in the U.S. only if al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups there are able to make a comeback. The U.S. says it's going to prevent that with uh, surveillance conducted from outside the country, drones flying from outside the country, what they call over the horizon, um, and that they will be able to detect a, a, a plot in the works and then... Um, be able to disrupt it with a with a drone strike. But you have to say this uh, mistake made uh, in uh, Kabul is not an, an encouraging uh, precedent. They had six drones over Kabul that day, six. So <clears throat> now everybody's gone. They have to operate these drones from outside the country. Are they really going to be able to sustain that many drones over... Six?
1: over drones, and yet an aid worker is who they killed, who well, had no ties to ISIS.
4: It, it was just a horrendous mistake, and nobody uh, claims it was anything but. Uh, but that, it happened in the context of a terrorist attack just a few days before communications intercepts telling them there was going to be another terrorist attack and that it was going to involve a white Uh, Toyota Corolla, and this aid worker just happened to be driving a white (laughs) Toyota Corolla, and as he drove around Koppel, just going about his business, at the same time, the drone operators are hearing these intercepts talking about a white Corolla, and so each one of his entirely innocent stops becomes suspicious to them, especially when they see him loading containers, into his trunk they thought they were explosives when they ordered the strike and after after the investigation was done of course those containers uh, held water which he was bringing home to his family because his home was without uh, running water i mean it was it was just the final debacle of the uh, afghan war well
1: and you know just this week the the deputy cia director told Olivia Ghazi's that they're already tracking al-Qaeda members moving back to Afghanistan. So it raises the stakes on getting things right when it yep. comes to protecting the homeland. In this new book, Peril, that just came out, mm-hmm. uh, there's extensive reporting about the decisions on both presidents regarding Afghanistan. The chairman of the chief, Joint Chiefs of Staff, the chief military advisor to the president, said, don't do it, don't do it this way. And the Secretary of Defense, General Austin, said the same thing to President Biden, and he dismissed it.
4: He didn't dismiss it. He listened. They all give him credit for listening, Um, but he just wasn't buying it. He just did not believe that it was worth the candle to remain in Afghanistan. Um, Remember, uh, Lloyd Austin had seen this movie before because he was the commander in Iraq during the Obama administration when the Obama administration Pulled all its combat troops out of Iraq, which gave rise to ISIS. And then he was the commander of the U.S. Central Command when ISIS came storming out of uh, mm-hmm. Syria. And we had to basically uh, fight the, uh, the war of Iraq all over. Right. So not only had he seen this movie before, he'd played a role in it. And, and he had a, uh, a great sense of foreboding.
1: And and that is why that reporting is so important. David, thank you for your analysis and your time today. We'll be right back.
5: The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I,
4: or download the app today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We go now to United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby, who joins us from State College, Pennsylvania. Good morning to you. Good morning. United has said 90% of your employees are vaccinated following your uh, mandate. What about contractors? And for someone buying a ticket on your airline, how confident can they be they won't run into someone unvaccinated?
8: Well, uh, there are a lot of people that work in the airports that don't yet have a vaccine requirement, though the administration's rule uh, is going to ultimately take care of that. But one of the things that's important when you're traveling on an airplane uh, particularly once you're on the airplane, it's really the safest place you can be because of the airflow on an airplane, safest place you can be indoors. And so wear your mask in the airport, that's a rule. Um, and, uh, and before long, we'll have everyone in the airports vaccinated, uh, thanks to the administration's order.
1: Well, the Delta variant is causing problems uh, in terms of people's willingness to buy tickets to get on planes. Your company ad- announced that uh, you're going to lose money the next two quarters. Why aren't people flying?
8: Well, the Delta variant has obviously caused a downturn uh, in in travel, It's particularly business travel. A lot of offices were expecting to be open again in September, uh, and the Delta variant has pushed those opening dates back a few months. My guess is it'll now be January. Uh, It appears that we've peaked in cases. Let's hope that that's the case. Let's hope that as we continue to get more people vaccinated, uh, we really can get back to normal across the country. But the demand recovery has really probably been pushed back to January.
1: Well, watch and see. Uh, would you advise the administration that they roll out another wave of mandates this time for passengers? You know, if TSA screens you to make sure you're not hurting your other passengers, potentially, should they also check your card to see if you're vaccinated?
8: Well, I think the administration is doing a really uh, admirable job of, of trying to find all the levers to push to get the whole country vaccinated. And they're discussing um, and this. Really got should better they do data it? You hear it sometimes, but I think their administration's perspective has been that getting people vaccinated at work, it's a one shot, and you can really get a whole bunch of the country, you get a high percentage of the country, as opposed to making it a burden on people that are vaccinated every time you get on a plane, a train, uh, any kind of public transportation to prove that you're vaccinated. And so for now, I think their approach of focusing on the employment and focusing on work is probably the right way to go. But they've got great data and science, and if they tell us that they want us to check everyone. Uh, we're prepared to do that as well.
1: When it comes to data and science, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, the former FDA commissioner, has argued that the Biden administration's travel restrictions that they've kept in place on Europe, on India and China, other countries, they don't really work. Um, have they given you a timeline on when those restrictions will be lifted? Uh,
8: they haven't given us a, a timeline specifically, but they do talk to us a lot. And You know, I think they're just trying to take a cautious approach and really put safety first as they go through uh, the crisis. And given the case rates, you know, in Europe and the U.S. are similar and the high vaccination rates higher in Europe, actually, uh, I'm hopeful that we'll get those borders, particularly to Europe, uh, open soon. Uh, But they're following the data and the science. But we hope that that as as cases come down, that that's something that will happen soon.
1: Do you think that's a political decision?
8: Uh, I, I really think that they're just focused on trying to do the right thing here. And this is yeah. a lot of uncertainty uh, around what it means. And I think they're just focused on the right thing.
1: Um, I want to ask you about some of what's being debated here on Capitol Hill. There are two huge bills, one on this $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan. Um, it's got funding in airports included into the package. How necessary is it and how would you want that money to be programmed? What do you need it for?
8: Yeah. So I I am very supportive of the entire infrastructure package as is most of the business community. Uh it's a great opportunity to invest in America coming out of the, out of this crisis. And at airports, you know, you can fly around and and see the airports. It's been a long time since we've had real investment in the airports, our air traffic control system, you know, still flies in a lot of ways the same way we flew 50, 60 years ago. Uh, and there's real opportunities to make it more efficient um and be good for the economy, uh good for customers, really kind of good for society as a whole.
1: So you're for the 1.2. When it comes to the $3.5 trillion spending bill, there's also some climate change-related provisions tucked into it. Um, We talked about that with Senator Sanders. But for you in in private business, is, is it just so expensive to make some of these changes on your own that you need American taxpayers to provide tax credits and to provide incentives for private businesses to go green?
8: Well, particularly for the climate change initiatives, we do need government support really to fund the investment. Like If you look at solar and wind, 20 years ago, they couldn't compete with coal or natural gas, and today it's cheaper. That's because the government provided credits to give certainty to invest in the industry, and that's what we need for things like sustainable aviation fuel. This really is an opportunity in America to drive investment, drive the next generation of great jobs. They can be green, but also great jobs, great technology that we can export around the world.
1: So for you, the benefit outweighs the risks here of spending that much money.
8: Well, the climate change elements are a part of the three and a half trillion. So the climate change elements in particular, and I don't know 100 percent of what they are, but the ones I do know about, I'm very supportive of uh, and and hope that they pass either in this bill or somewhere else.
1: Well, watch. Thank you, Mr. Kirby, for your time this morning. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb has been a valuable resource for this broadcast and our viewers throughout the COVID crisis, helping us cut through the confusion to tell you what you need to know. His new book, Uncontrolled Spread, takes a critical look at the mistakes America's leaders made in responding to this pandemic and how we need to better prepare for the next one. We sat down with him last week.
2: I think That the public health establishment as a whole has taken a hit in the setting of this pandemic. And this isn't just a sort of Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal thing. I think that there's a lot of people around the country who feel that the advice they got from public health officials um, wasn't precise, changed, uh, wasn't wasn't formulated in a way where it was sort of immutable, um, wasn't carefully explained, wasn't propagated in a way that it could be assimilated into people's lives. You know, how do I wear a mask? What mask should I wear? When should I wear a mask? When not? And things changed. And so people were confused by it and lost confidence in it.
1: You say the CDC, which is supposed to be the gold standard public health agency, doesn't have an operational capability to manage a crisis of this scale. So if the CDC doesn't, who does?
2: Nobody does. I mean, there was a perception early in in this crisis that the CDC has this, that they would have the capacity to develop a diagnostic test and deploy it and gather the data that we would need, sort of scope out what the contours of the response would be, and they would be able to deploy the diagnostic test and deploy the vaccine and stand up this infrastructure. They're not a logistical organization. CDC has a very retrospective mindset. It's a high science organization that does deep analytical analysis of data that's oftentimes out of sync to when the decisions need to get made. They're not the Joint Special Operations Command. They don't surface real-time information to, to inform current policy making. They're not a quick reaction Right. They, they'd rather take the data, analyze it for four months, and publish it in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And the idea that they were going to be able to mass manufacture a diagnostic test and forward deploy it, they clearly, they contaminated their own tests. So they, they, they botched the manufacture of their test. We process. needed to
1: turn... To private industry earlier in the pandemic, we needed
2: an all but all the above approach. Certainly by the end of January, we had enough awareness that this could be a global pandemic, that someone could have hit the red button and said, "We need an all of the above approach here." But CDC had the ball. The CDC was following their standard blueprint. Their blueprint is could. Keep up with a slow-moving outbreak, but in a fast-moving epidemic like this, it was unmatched. Now, CDC should have raised their hand and said, "We really don't have this." I think. Why the, didn't they? I think it's very difficult for an agency to have the self-awareness that they don't have the capacity to respond in the way they're being asked. We need to get FEMA and the DoD engaged with the CDC and try and organize a national level response. And that—that that was a failure of political leadership. I mean, and it was a failure of vision, but. You know, there were a lot of people who were good political leaders who wrongly assumed the CDC had this mission.
1: You say the point isn't that federal health officials were wrong. The point is they were working with faulty tools, faulty data sets. They didn't know what they didn't know.
2: They didn't understand that this wasn't spreading like flu. If you're just looking for flu symptoms, you might not see coronavirus spreading. So they were very confident early on that there was no community spread. We should have been doing things differently in anticipation that this probably was spreading. We just weren't picking it up, which, in fact, was the case.
1: You also say this should have been viewed as a national security threat, and that's how we need to think of pandemics.
2: I think the intelligence community has... Um, different tools that should be focused on this mission. We have to look at public health preparedness through the lens of national security. We make certain preparations for things that are unlikely to happen, but if they happen, they're so catastrophic that we have to prepare. We cannot allow something like this to hit us this bad again. So we have to prepare differently domestically. But internationally, we rely on other nations to tell us when they have an outbreak. That has repeatedly failed. It failed in this case. China didn't surface the early information. They still haven't shared the source strain. So the question becomes, can we still rely on the international health regulations and the WHO and the World Health Assembly? Are we going to all hold hands again and promise that we really mean it this time and we're going to share information? Or do we need to get our clandestine services more engaged in this mission? And I think we're going to need to get our clandestine services more engaged in this mission. There was data very clearly available in China, in Wuhan, that if we were looking for it, We could have detected this much sooner. We could have answered some key questions. We could have seen the asymptomatic spread. We could have seen the human-to-human transmission. You could have had some key questions answered early that could have allowed us to mount a more robust response. And a a two- or four-week head start on something like this can make a very big difference.
1: What did you learn in the course of your research about the origins of COVID?
2: I learned that we're not going to answer this question absent one of two things happening. Either we find the intermediate host, the animal that was the... um, that spread COVID, or uh, there's a whistleblower inside China, or someone close to this who knows that this came out of a lab, comes forward, defects, goes overseas, um, or we intercept some communication that we shouldn't have had access to. Absent something like that, we're not going to be able to answer this question. This is going to be a battle of competing narratives. I think over time, the side of the ledger that, that says that this might have come out of a lab, has grown more robust, and the side of the ledger that says this came out of a natural species uh, has not really moved.
1: When you say came out of a lab, you were saying through a lab accident, not a construct.
2: The administration has said this in the intelligence report they put out. They've sort of firmly debunked the idea that this was something that could have deliberately come out of a lab or was deliberately engineered.
1: Why do we need to know who patient zero is?
2: If we determine that this came out of a lab or we even assess that there's a high probability that this came out of a lab, I think it changes how we try to govern research internationally. The most speculative most dangerous research often goes to the countries willing to conduct it. And the countries willing to conduct it are oftentimes the countries that have the poorest controls. The other thing we're going to need to look at is, do we continue to do things like publish the sequences of novel viruses? Once you publish that sequence as part of normal scientific discourse and and part of the scientific process, you basically provide a recipe to anyone who's a rogue actor on how to manufacture that virus.
1: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a lot more of our conversation with Dr. Gottlieb. So don't go away. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana.
4: It doesn't get any better than this.
3: Your favorite seats, the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or
1: VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
5: There really is no place like home.
1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. We're back with more of our conversation with former FDA Commissioner and Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. What is the lesson for the Biden administration as they roll out boosters? Do they need to change the playbook from what the Trump administration did?
2: Yeah, I I think the logistical lesson on the rollout of the boosters is that they need to have in place the infrastructure to actually um, distribute those vaccines in hard-to-reach communities and hard-to-reach settings. I think what the Biden administration has done here is by... Backing into an approximate date, they're now able to start that planning process in advance. If FDA does authorize it and the advisory committee, the CDC, ultimately judges it to be appropriate for a certain population, they're going to be ready to start making it available in the nursing homes right away. So there's not going to be a delay. So I think they're in a better position. I don't know that the vaccine boosters are going to be controversial from the standpoint of sort of right versus left politics. I think where the fault lines are going to be is on some of the mandates that the administration is putting in place.
1: How does it sit with you when you hear members of your party, the Republican Party, describe all this along civil liberties lines, not making the medical argument, but simply around civil liberties?
2: Yeah, look, I think it's a misjudgment. There is this argument that this is an individual choice. Your choice to get vaccinated is an individual choice. And it's not an individual choice. This is a this is a decision that affects your community. This is a collective choice. If you go, and just like with... Um, childhood vaccinations. If you go into a school setting and you, you're not vaccinated for measles and you introduce measles into that setting, you're affecting your community. So I don't think governors should tell schools and businesses you can't mandate a vaccine. If a business makes a decision that the only way that I could protect my employees or, or my customers is by having a fully vaccinated workforce, they should have the ability to make that decision.
1: But it's not just shots. We're talking about masks.
2: And the, the mask debate is inexplicable to me. Like I I can't, I can't decouple it. I can't explain it. I can't defend it. People generally have an apprehension about taking a medical product, especially when they're healthy, especially for a preventative purpose. I understand just sort of people's general questions and concerns about a novel medical product. But a mask is such a simple intervention. It's not going to cause you any harm. It's just an act of, you know, Community responsibility—it's an act of respect—and I think the the federal government is well within its right to mandate vaccination for federal workers, um, for healthcare workers. I think even mandating vaccination within the Medicare program could be something that's defensible. But when you impose the mandate down to the level of small businesses, now you're setting up the political fault lines, and you're taking something that was sort of subjectively political, and it's going to be objectively political. So are you going to get enough benefit from a public health standpoint for the price you pay in terms of hardening those lines? I think that was worth a very vigorous debate. I I hope the White House had it.
1: Which governors handled this the worst?
2: Certainly looking at South Dakota, where this was just allowed to travel largely unfettered with public health interventions, where you saw one of the highest death rates per capita. You have to look back and say that was a, a bad experience. Once we learned how to treat this, once we were able to reduce the case fatality rate by half, By the summertime, when we got there, we got there pretty quickly. States that were still excessively um, engulfed by this and had a lot of death and disease, those were in part policy decisions. Those were in part the result of policy choices that those states made.
1: I think about the first few days where this strange virus that was just surfacing started to make headlines here at home. You were starting to see things that weren't yet really being raised as red flags. How are you on the outside seeing things that they weren't seeing on the inside?
2: There was a presumption, again, that the CDC has this, the department has this, the Secretary of Health and Human Services is in control. So they let that health care apparatus run with the ball. It really wasn't until probably more like the end of February, the March timeframe, that you saw the White House really starting to get engaged and pull this away from um the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the healthcare institutions, and start to at least try to more actively manage it. And that was the the genesis of the coronavirus task force.
1: It's been reported um, that you were actually considered to come and run that task force. Uh, Is that y- true?
2: You know, I, I don't know for sure. The president asked me to come in. I met with him, I met with the Vice President and asked me to take a position as uh, sort of as an advisor or helping oversee the task force after the vice president had been put in charge. That felt like it was moving along and more real. Ultimately, it didn't come together. Why? um, I don't know for sure. There were probably people in the White House who wanted to see me in that position and probably people in the White House who didn't.
1: Do you regret, though, not being on the inside? You had been with the Trump administration until 2019. So
2: I regret not being at the FDA. I don't know that there was much that I could have done dramatically differently inside the White House. And eventually, I would have worn out my welcome because there would have been people inside the White House who wouldn't have liked what I was preaching. If I had been at FDA with my staff, working with the the career staff in in the device center, I'm pretty confident that we would have um, made a very hard pivot to try to instigate the private industry to um, start getting engaged in developing diagnostic tests early in January. And so you wish
1: somebody at the FDA was doing that? I
2: think that would have had to happen at the commissioner level. It couldn't happen below that level. If I would have called any big manufacturer, though, they would have done it. I have no doubt about that. Having been there and having made those calls and having known that CEOs responded positively in moments of public health crisis, that's the one thing I wish I was there to do. And, you know, I wrote articles about, doing that at the time. I was writing articles in January. This is what we should do. But, you know, writing op-eds and putting things on Twitter isn't like being there and actually being able to pick up the phone and effectuate the action. I wish I was there. I think that that's the the FDA and the optives, the operational divisions of HHS is where the action happens. That's where you can really affect the outcome. Affecting the outcome from the White House, much harder.
1: As you write in March, when you went in to speak with the president, that he was serious, he knew the grave
2: risks. There was a point in time when they were very concerned about this, willing to take dramatic actions. But later on, um, their attitudes really changed to the point where when the president was contagious with COVID, he ceremoniously took his mask off. And so what message does that send to the country? But my view is that they were um, sold on the idea that you weren't going to be able to really affect the spread. And that anything you did was just going to have so many repercussions in terms of impact on children who might not be in school, um, impact on the economy, that the costs were worse than the disease. And the schools is a a perfect example of the lack of effective policymaking. So the single reason why most schools remain shut was because the CDC was telling them they had to keep kids six feet apart. if CDC had said you can only you have to keep th- kids 3 feet apart then a lot of schools would have been able to open it. and in fact when the Biden administration wanted to open schools in the spring this past spring they got the CDC to change that guidance from 6 feet to 3 feet
1: and you right the 6 feet was Arbitrary. The
2: six feet was arbitrary in and of itself. Nobody knows where it came from. The initial recommendation that the CDC brought to the White House, and I talk about this, was 10 feet. And a, a political appointee in the White House said, We can't recommend 10 feet. Nobody can measure 10 feet. It's inoperable. Society will shut down. So the compromise was around six feet. Now imagine if that detail had leaked out. Everyone would have said, This is the White House politically interfering with the CDC's judgment. The CDC said 10 feet, it should be 10 feet. But 10 feet was no more right than six feet, and ultimately became three feet. But when it became three three feet, the, the basis for the CDC's decision to ultimately revise it from six to three feet was a study that they had conducted the prior fall. So they changed it in the spring. They had done a study in the fall where they showed that if you have two masked individuals, two people wearing masks... The, the risk of transmission is reduced 70% with masks if you're three feet apart. So they said on the basis of that, we can now make a judgment that three feet is an appropriate distance, which begs the question, if they had that study result in the fall, why didn't they change the advice in the fall? why did they wait until the spring? This is how the whole thing feels arbitrary and not science based. So we talk about a very careful science based process. And then these anecdotes get exposed. And that's where Americans start to lose confidence in how the decisions got made.
1: You do put Blame on President Trump for a few things. But do you think fundamentally, looking at everything you've analyzed, that the outcome of this pandemic would have been different if President Trump wasn't in office?
2: Well, it would have been different if we had different political decisions um, and the White House was exercising different leadership. There's no question about that. Um, There's no question that the White House made mistakes And the lack of consistency was a big mistake. And also the lack of using the White House as an effective bully pulpit to really galvanize the collective action that could make a difference on the margins. Allowing this to sort of get divided along political fault lines in the the setting of an election when things were already, the temperature was already very high, I think really hurt us. But stepping back from that, I think that there were fundamental weaknesses with our response that regardless of who was in power, we had an ill-prepared bureaucracy. We didn't have the right infrastructure. We didn't have the right... Agencies, the agencies weren't properly empowered. So even if you had competent leadership, very effective leadership up and down the chain, you still would have had some of the same problems.
1: The full conversation with Dr. Gottlieb about his book Uncontrolled Spread is in two parts on our website at facethenation.com. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were National Institutes of Health Director Dr. Francis Collins, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. CBS News Senior National Security Correspondent David Martin, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation's Mary A. Girk. The broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.